All right. Welcome back to STEM Fatal, your women in science history podcast. Yeah. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm your other co-host, Dr. Emma Dilemma. And it's been a bit. It's been a minute. It sure has, Emlyn. So, yeah, we took a break last week. There was so much going on. Um covid and the protests and we wanted to uh, step back and try to actually amplify uh, black scientists and black voices and just give us a little time to uh, figure out who we wanted to talk about and actually do some due diligence for our episode yeah definitely Um, so now so now we're back and um in support of black lives matter and in honor of juneteenth which is a holiday commemorating the emancipation from slavery Mm -hmm. in Texas. Um, We want to talk about, or I want to talk about, to you, Emma, (laughs) the story of Katherine Johnson. Yes, finally. Yay. (laughs) It's been... It's been a long time coming. Does that sound good? Yeah, I'm so Um, excited. I love her so much. Okay. Yeah. Let's do this. So... Uh, Before I jump in, in case you don't know who Katherine Johnson is, if you know anything about hidden figures, read the book, seen the movie, or just kind of Mm -hmm. know of it peripherally, um, Katherine Johnson was a NASA mathematician who was integral to the earliest manned space flights and was really key um, to a lot of work that NASA did during Mm -hmm. the space race. Yeah. So let's get into it from the beginning. Woohoo! I I have seen. I'll say I've seen hidden figures, but I know that that's kind of a fictionalized version. It's almost fictional nonfiction, right? Like it's a bit of both. I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think, I think with a lot of movies, they took a lot of liberal, liberal things from the book, right. which I think is much more a nonfiction book yeah that's more accurate but i think they did a lot of like you know in hidden figures the book she talks about a huge number of uh, black women who worked in nasa and all of their contributions and i think a lot of that is kind of merged together for the sake of like simplicity in the movie yeah okay cool well i'm really excited then to hear more about the specifics of Catherine's life you know Yes. Cool. Yes. Yay. Okay, so Katherine Johnson was born as Creola Katherine Coleman in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, on August 26th, 1918. Her mother, uh, named Joletta Roberta Lowe, was a teacher, and her father, uh, named Joshua Coleman, was a farmer, lumberman, and handyman at the Greenbrier Hotel. Wow. Which was this, like, luxury resort in the Allegheny Mountains that hosted famous people like Dwight D. Eisenhower and Princess Grace of Monaco. Oh, my gosh. Do you know who Princess Grace of Monaco is? What do you mean? Do you know what her other name is? Oh, yeah. It's like a a side tangent, but I always find it, like, fascinating. Oh, I forget. It's Grace Kelly. Right, yeah. I was just, like, totally spacing. Yeah. But anyway, so her father also was, like, kind of a math whiz, even though he didn't have a lot of uh, education and didn't work in that kind of field. He was definitely very smart and definitely math-oriented, and she got a lot of her math skills clearly from him. 
Interesting. That's cool. Though both of her parents seem to be very intelligent. Yeah. I mean, her mom's a teacher, which mm-hmm. all teachers, good teachers are really smart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I wonder if her dad probably developed a lot of math skills in his building career. Like in yeah, order, potentially. You know, sort of like an architecture. I don't know. Yeah. He cultivated skills. Yeah. His math skills. Um, through just, I think, like, life. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, um, Catherine was the youngest of four children, and she was clearly gifted in math from a really early age. There's a lot of talk about her essentially just, like, counting everything she could find. So, wow. when she was at school, she just counted all the books in the classroom she counted all the, you know, freckles on people's faces, Aww. yada, yada, yada. She counted. Um, I think it was also like a soothing thing for her, but mm. also she was just very good at numbers. Um, and so they lived in Greenbrier County in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And in Greenbrier, the public schooling system only went to some sources said eighth grade and other sources said sixth grade. Oh. Uh, so for African-Americans, they're... The schools ended at either eighth or sixth grade, okay. and there was no high school. Wow, that they could go to. So that was just like, all right, well, your your education's done. Yeah. Uh, and so her her parents, like she was so smart, and her siblings were really intelligent, and they, you know, her mother was a teacher. They valued education really mm-hmm. highly, and so her parents arranged for all of the children to go two hours away. Um, to the town of Institute, West Virginia, to be educated at um, a black high school where they actually had education up till, you know, 12th grade. But two hours away, like, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, takes a lot and of find... work and support to be a mm-hmm. man. And I think they moved there, and I don't know what it said was that they they spent the school year in Institute, and then we come back to Greenbrier during the summer. So I think the whole family, or like at least the mother, moved there. Yeah. Um, So it wasn't a commuting situation, I don't think. Interesting. Um, Yeah. But they like uprooted their lives so that their kids could have more education. Wow. And Catherine was very ahead of her time. Like she already had skipped some grades. She went to high school at the age of 10 years old. Oh, my gosh. Which sounds kind of awful, but I guess being bored is also kind of awful. So, (laughs) Yeah. I can't even think of what my life was like at 10 years old. I don't think I I would have been ready yet. No. Yeah. uh -uh. But she graduated from high school at the age of 14. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And then started – so in institute, essentially this – high school that she went to was a part or like affiliated with West Virginia State College, which was a historically black college in Institute, West Virginia. And so she, at the age of 14, then went to uh, West Virginia State College for undergrad at the age of 14. Oh, my God. Which is insane. And I definitely would not be ready for college. Like, just emotionally, that sounds like... A bit of a lonely experience. Like, she had her four siblings in town with her, so maybe, you know, it wasn't as lonely as, like, going off somewhere to college and then being so much younger than everyone, but... Yeah. 
Is that where Margaret Collins went? The termite um, scientist? I feel like, yeah, she did. I just looked it up. Yeah? Yeah. That's really awesome. interesting. I wonder, um, I don't know what time Margaret Collins went there or what year, but that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's but cool. I can't imagine going to college at 14. Uh-uh. Like, you're not an adult, you know. I wonder if there were any other students there her age or if everybody was a lot older. It would be very I can't isolating. imagine there would be many of them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I skipped a grade because I went from the U.S. to England, and I had, like, an emotional breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just can't imagine, like, Aww. being... Yeah. That uh, much younger. Just mature enough to handle it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-mm. But she was. Mm-hmm. Um, and while she was there, she was mentored by some amazing mathematicians. So she was mentored by Angie Turner King, who was um, a mathematician and chemist who was one of the first African-American women to receive a Ph.D. Wow. So she was a professor at the university. And Catherine was also... Mentored by W.W. Schieffelin Clater. Schieffelin Clater, I think that's how you say it. Who was the third African American to receive a PhD in mathematics and was the first to publish in a mathematical research journal. So she had some great people to look up to and they're also like helping her. And they saw great promise in her and were trying to help her along as much as possible. Yeah, you need those mentors to encourage you. You need those mentors, mm-hmm. yeah. You need people who, like, have faith in you and that are going to put yep. their neck out yep. and really, like, stick up for you. So Catherine finished all of her math courses at college, like, in the midst of her college, just, like, pretty early. And so Clater <laughs> added new math courses just for her so she had more <laughs> stuff to do. That's it's just insane. How do you just, like... Finish all your math courses. You know, was she like double? I, I don't know. Doubling up or something? Yeah, that's really. Or was it more independent study for a lot of them? Perhaps that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. She whizzed through them. That's great. And Good for her. Yeah, and she graduated summa cum laude in 1937 at the age of 18 with degrees in math and French. Oh, French. That's cool. Yeah. It's like so yeah. random. <laughs> Why not? Just, just throw it in there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I know Clater, one of her like advisors and mentors, mm-hmm. was really trying to train her and push her for a career in mathematics, even though at the time there were so many barriers for her having like a research mathematics career. Yeah. Like being like a black man was extremely difficult to get into that career. And so also being a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think he felt like if anybody could do it, you're going to be able to, Aww. but there was a lot of barriers. Yeah. For her. So yeah. And during this time, so she, she got her, degree and at this time for black college educated women essentially teaching was like the go-to profession it was like well respected and you had to be educated but that was about as far as you could really expect to go Mm -hmm. 
after she graduated from college, Johnson or Catherine took a teaching job at a segregated black public school in Marion, Virginia. Brown versus Board was 1954. Okay, yeah. So this is way before. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah that so was when it all... was ruled unconstitutional nationally. Yeah. 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 So we're still definitely in segregated schools. Yeah. Um, so during this time, while she's teaching, after she got her degree, she married her first husband, James Goebel. I don't really know much more about this man. Gotcha. Um, Sometimes <laughs> it happens. A lot of information. A lot of our ladies yeah. just have those those blips, you know. And like I know, um, I'm sure. Like I'm listening to Hidden Figures, but I'm only halfway through it. So Katherine Johnson is like starting to come into the picture because it's a lot of the things building up and before she got there, like the infrastructure that was building up around. NASA. Oh, so I haven't okay. gotten to the point where it might tell me yeah, about her where first she husband. met this husband, but you know, it's not about him. Yeah. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not about him. All right. So, while she was teaching one day, um the West Virginia State College president, Dr. John Davis was waiting for her after school. So she Whoa. like left her classroom after teaching all day, and he was standing there. Yeah. So in 1938, a few years earlier than this, the U.S. Supreme Court ruling Missouri X. Rel. Gaines versus Canada ruled that states that had higher education for white students had to also offer them to black students. Oh, okay, good. So this one step. So this could be done either by adding graduate programs to historically black colleges and universities. Ah, uh, okay. Or by allowing black students to enter previously white-only mm-hmm. universities. So they could keep it segregated, <laughs> but they would have to, like, invest in grad programs at historically black colleges. Or they could allow, like, black doctoral candidates like, what a thought, into white you know. universities. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I, I guess didn't realize West Virginia decided... Well, no, go ahead. I guess I didn't realize... Did historically black universities not have graduate programs? Like, were they not allowed to until that time? I think I think they were, but, like, some of them were, you know, colleges generally focus on undergrads and don't have, like, right. master's or okay. PhD programs. And so it might be, I think, Virginia, West Virginia State College was primarily undergrad, and so they didn't have, like, grad programs. Okay. Interesting. Okay. And so West Virginia decided that instead of investing in black programs at uh, West Virginia State College, that they would allow African-American um, scholars to come into the Ph.D. programs. Okay. So it was a law that basically, I guess, like somewhat forced states to make programs available at, in one way or another. Yeah, so okay, they could gotcha. do it by keeping things segregated mm-hmm. if they invested in grad programs yeah, for historically black colleges. Okay. Or they would have to allow students to come to the white-only universities yeah. to do grad programs. Okay, cool. Yeah. So he, so this is like the backdrop. And so the West Virginia 
State College President, Dr. John Davies, was waiting for her because he wanted to ask if she would be willing to attend graduate school at the previously white-only West Virginia University in Morgantown, West Virginia, and help, um, like, desegregate it. Wow. And she agreed. Good, yep. So she was hand-selected by the president, uh, the, the college president, to do this. So it was her and then two other male students Oh my God! Who went and integrated West Virginia University? I wonder. And she was so she was the only African American woman mm-hmm. at that university once she entered. That must be just so scary. Yeah, yeah. I think it was mm-hmm. from what I read. Uh, Catherine felt a lot of stress and anxiety about this. Yeah. And being the only black woman in an all-white university. And so her mother actually came, moved in and came to live with her to support her Aww. like wow. as she started the grad program. Which is like, thanks, Mom. Yeah, moms are great. Moms are great. Okay. So, um, but, but apparently she didn't, she was like very worried about a lot of discrimination or like hate speech or people just being awful to her. And primarily she didn't get that people were either nice or respectful or like didn't really talk to her but there was no like outward hostility i don't think she felt unsafe that's good once she okay. actually like got there yeah um so after a year in grad school so she's married she became pregnant and decided to instead focus on her family um because you couldn't really do both at that time yeah and so she didn't finish her math degree but instead, she uh, raised three girls, Constance, Joylette, and Catherine, wow. over the next 13 years <gasps> and continued to teach in public schools in the neighboring Virginia. Okay, wait. So this husband was not just a blip. There's just not any really information on him, huh? Yeah, no, he's not a blip. I just, like, can't figure out what his deal is. Gotcha. And I'm sure, like, if I dug deeper, I could figure it out. But yeah. But yes, it's not about him. It's not about him. him. Yeah. But I, I, I couldn't easily figure out what his mm-hmm. deal was. Yeah. Wow. Three but daughters. Clearly he's quality because, you know, they <laughs> were together quality. for a while. That's funny. Three daughters. I think, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you don't see many women, like, so I guess her, her daughter, Catherine, would be Catherine. Would that be Catherine Jr.? Like, yeah. If you name your. Yeah. You just don't see a lot of the feet of Senior, the female junior, um, yeah. The mm-hmm. first, the second, but the I third. Like, I like it. Yeah, I like it too. But I don't want to like yell at Emlyn, little Emlyn. Yeah, I feel like that's usually where your the younger one has like a nickname, like Katie or something. Mm-hmm. You could call yours yeah. Emmy or Lynn, I guess. <laughs> There's so many <laughs> options with my name. Um, like Gilmore Girls, right. Emlyn, Lorelai, and Rory. Oh, I like totally didn't even. I it's didn't even just realize like they had Gilmore the same Girls. Name. It's absolutely just like Gilmore no. Girls. I mean, she's like young. Like you know, they're like what she was probably twenty. Well, she okay, wasn't she's a little sixteen. Older than yeah. <laughs> no, no, she wasn't. She was. She was in college in sixteen. Yeah. Wow. She took a much better path than Lorelai. Yeah, no, yeah. No offense. No offense. But it worked out for Lorelai. Okay, <laughs> this isn't about our Lorelai. fictional character. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, 
man. The last season was so disappointing. Anyways. Yes. Yes. So, although Johnson... So, she, she left the ma- this math program, but Catherine was interested... Still interested in being a research mathematician, but she didn't really see how it would manifest itself, um, given, like her need to provide for her family and like take care of her kids and also just like all the barriers mm-hmm. um, that she faced. Yeah. Yeah. And there just female... wasn't the infrastructure to support no. women in science and especially not black women in science. Yeah. Yeah. Now this is where world war two comes in. Our favorite. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the famous women's liberator, World War II. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's oh such a like tragic time in history, but it's it I know. seriously changed the world for women in like a yeah. good way, which is a yep. weird thing that we talk about all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. It's like the weird I mean it's yeah. Yeah. It's a weird thing to say that, like, good things came out of it because World War II is, like, such a terrible, terrible yeah. dark time in history. Mm-hmm. But um, it is what it is. Yeah. All right. So during World War II, as we've talked about before, um, men were at war. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. They were doing their thing. <laughs> Just quick recap of World War II. Men went to war. <laughs> Women went to war. <laughs> Exactly. Men went to war and there was this huge need for production. And so women were given these like many freedoms out of the necessity of war. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) however, like despite the pressing needs of the war, racial discrimination continued to put up walls for African-Americans to advance and acquire government jobs. So a time of a lot of liberation for women, but our, like, racism still wouldn't allow us to open up a lot of these jobs to African-Americans. Yeah. However, in 1941, A. Philip Randolph, who was a pioneering civil rights advocate, proposed to march on D.C. with 100,000 people to draw attention to racial discrimination. Very parallel to what's going on now. Yeah. Uh, and the threat of this march. So, like, they didn't even march. He just, like, threatened to march on D.C. Mm-hmm. And this threat led to President Roosevelt D. or Franklin D. Roosevelt issuing Executive Order 8802, which prevented racial discrimination in hiring for federal and war-related work. Wow. So, Philip Randolph's mobilization and demands for equality cleared the way for Katherine Johnson and other, like, black computers such as Dorothy Vaughn and Mary mm-hmm. uh, Jackson to do their jobs and actually be able to, like, be a part of NASA and things like that. I mean, it's crazy that people have to protest just to go to work. You know what I mean? Yeah, Like... It's like you are short on... Like, you need help. Pay us to help... Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, this executive order, 8802, kind of ordered NASA to start hiring people based on just their, like, skills. And so, they ended up hiring a bunch of black women computers, which I'll talk about in, like, a hot sec. Yeah. Okay. Cool. 
Oh, sorry. My ice is clinking. How dare you? What are you drinking? A uh, cold brew. I've had three cold mm. brews and a Sudafed, and I'm freaking feeling it. <laughs> <laughs> what a questionable combo. But I love it. Yeah, my allergies have been so bad, though, that it's like, this is just to get me to kind of a normal status, you know, like, in my and I'm mind. feeling it. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so, after Executive Order 8802, um, the National... The Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory in Hampton, Virginia, which was one of, like, NASA's bases, mm-hmm. yep. began to hire college-educated African-American women as computers. Computers were people who, you know, did all the mathematical calculations before we had digital computers. Yeah. So they were the math whizzes. So due to Virginia's segregation laws and federal workplace segregation laws under President Woodrow Wilson... The African-American women computers that they had hired because of Executive Order 8802 were still required to work, eat, and use restrooms separately from white peers. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they put all of these new computers in this building that was relatively undeveloped on the west area of campus um, and labeled this as the colored computer area. And this group is now, I think, more kind of kindly referred to as the West Area Computers. So, like, you'll see that everywhere, like the West Area Computers. Mm -hmm. And it's this group of African-American mathematicians who were working at NASA at this time. Uh, And this team was led by Dorothy Vaughn, who is a mathematician who we should definitely cover in her own episode that's featured uh, prominently in Hidden Figures, mm-hmm. and she's like, I think Octavia Spencer plays her Yeah, in the movie. I think, I'm pretty sure. There's a picture of, after Hidden Figures, this is a tangent, but after Hidden Figures came out, all the actors in that movie got to meet Barack Obama, and so there's a picture of Octavia Spencer, and, like, her face is just, like, clearly she just shook his hand and then turned, and so Barack's, like, behind her, and her face is just, like, shocked, that's joyous, that's like, amazing. kind of, like, also uh, a little, like, sheepish. I don't know. It's it's really a lovely photo. Yeah, and... Katherine Johnson is played by Taraji P. Henson, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. If anyone listening and, has seen Hidden Figures and is trying to remember. And, and, like, and Mary Jackson, uh, who is one of the engineers mm-hmm. uh, at NASA, she's played by Janelle Monet. I know, who's the freaking best. Yeah. Okay, so now we're back to the... Yeah. To now the they've real. started this whole <laughs> West Area Computers due to this executive order. And so that's kind of been going for, you know, maybe 10 years after World War II. Okay. Now, this is where Katherine Johnson comes into NASA. So during a family gathering in uh, 1952, Katherine's relative mentioned that the national, or that NASA was hiring, then called NACA, but NASA, was hiring mathematicians Uh, And that they already had black female computers. So it was like, they're hiring, like, they will hire you. You are so qualified. Like, you should just go apply. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And like this had been in the back, you know, Catherine's been working as a teacher and a, a mother for 13 years. But like, I think in the back of her head, she always wanted to be a research mathematician. And so as soon as she like heard about this opportunity, she applied right away. And I think they asked in the application, like, how quickly can you start work? And she was like, 48 hours. Wow. I will be there. Yeah. But she lived in Virginia, so it wasn't, like, terribly far away. But So Catherine obviously got the job because she's a badass. Yeah. And she accepted the offer at Langley in June 1953. And so Catherine came on and worked as a computer as part of this West Area Computers on the Langley campus. And Catherine says of this time, quote, I didn't feel the segregation at NASA because everybody there was doing research. I didn't feel any segregation. I knew it was there, but I didn't feel it. Interesting. So I think there was a lot of, like, from listening to Hidden Figures, it seems like it was a strange kind of mix of people where, like, everybody's trying to do research. There really is... There's definitely some, like, segregation, and there's definitely, like, this, like, kind of class system. But everybody's working on the same goals, and everybody's, like, really smart researchers. And you'll um, have—you'd have the West Area computers kind of go to different groups of white engineers and, like, help them with the math for a day and then come back. And so it was this really collaborative program. But then there's also all of these rules— of like, yeah, all the West Area computers have to eat separately and have to be in a different building. So it's this weird, almost well, integration, but also top-down segregation. I mean, I wonder if part of why, you know, they didn't, she didn't notice segregation at work is because it was normal for that time. You know what I mean? So like yeah, at work, like it didn't was feel it more that blatant? different from just Maybe. how life was, you know. But it was yeah. segregated. Like, yeah, it's interesting. So, um, the computers often received. Essentially, what they did was they received instructions to do some calculation for, you know, flight flight simulations or something to do with. At the beginning, it was mostly like aircrafts but then later it became more about like space shuttles and things like that yeah but a lot of the time they would be asked to do these calculations without any context of like what the calculation was going to be used for by the engineers who were all white males essentially Mm, um and they never really learned the fate of their calculations and what the outcome was um and they were also weren't given credit on the report that came about based on their studious calculations. So there was still this, like, the computers were kind of separated from the actual engineering and um, actions that were being taken by NASA. So there was this weird, like, separation a bit. Yeah. Yeah. But occasionally, a specific engineering team would need a computer to work with them more closely. And so a computer would be like lent out to them for a day and would go work with that group. Lent out. That's so like weird. I know. (laughs) Yeah. You know, they would, yeah, they would be like, okay, you're going to go work with this Uh group for the day. Yeah. Yeah. And so one day Dorothy Vaughn, who is in charge of the West Area Computers, sent Catherine to help the all-male flight research team, uh, which was the like flight research division, um, on some calculations. And Catherine's knowledge of analytical geometry earned her the respect of the male bosses and colleagues in this team. 
And after kind of really showing her prowess and intellect in her ability to do analytical geometry, uh, she didn't return to the West Area Computers but remained as part of this specific flight team for the next five years. They just were like, we, we need your intellect. Yeah, um, right. And so they just kept her as part of the team, essentially. Yeah, her skills were unparalleled. Unpa- yeah, absolutely. And so as part of the flight research division, she investigated things such as wake turbulence, um, and all of these things led to the improved safety of military and commercial wow. aviation. That's really cool. And Catherine says at this time, quote, I just happened to be working with guys, and when they had briefings, I asked permission to go. And they said, well, the girls don't usually go. And I said, well, is there a law? (laughs) They said no. Uh, So then my boss said, let her go. Um, (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So... Uh, apparently then she never stopped going to these meetings like after she had asked and gotten permission the first time and so this helped gain her reputation and helped her progress up the ranks because she was actually at these like meetings where she learned context and what they were trying to do and she could like put her two cents in and a lot of this was like there was no explicit rules that said she couldn't it was just this like uh, assumed thing that nobody had done it and so she was just like wait can i and why why not right and so a lot of she like got to progress that way she just questioned the status quo and yep made it seem completely illogical which it was and so Mm -hmm. yeah it's really brave and and smart um so during this time as she's like now kind of integrated into this flight research division uh, in 1956, her husband, James Goebel, died of an uh, inoperable brain tumor. Oh, that's sad. I know. And so, like, at this point, she has three kids and yeah. a full-time job. I don't know how she did that. Oh, my god. Maybe she had family in town. Maybe I think there was probably a big support network um, of people who are all working at NASA, trying to help yeah. each other out. From what I was listening to in Hidden Figures, it seemed like... Um, There was a lot of um, help trying to make sure that everybody could go to work and that kids were taken care of and stuff like that. So um, I'm not sure of the specifics, but I'm sure it's got to have been extremely hard to Mm -hmm. like. Yeah. Even just emotionally, if you have that support network, it can be really. Yeah. Yeah. Just grieving and everything. Mm -hmm. So although the World War Two was over and had been over for a while. This was just the beginning of the importance and work of NASA. Right. So with growing tensions with Russia came the Cold War, and in 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik into space. And in doing so, they also kind of launched this space race Mm -hmm. and transitioned NACA into the space agency NASA. Mm -hmm. So before it was called NACA, and at this time, then they transitioned. Yeah. Then in 1958... NACA actually disbanded and was superseded by NASA. And with this transition, they also disbanded the the West Area computers and kind of transitioned to digital computers. Oh, okay. I didn't realize there were digital... What were the digital computers like at that time? Do you know? Or I'm guessing that they're like the huge things that like Grace Hopper dealt with. 
Right. Or like kind of calculators, even like something in between those two things. Well, the Mark I computer, which was like, I think the first one that was at Harvard that was during World War II, was introduced in 1944. Okay, yeah. So they did have those giant computers then. Okay. Yeah. And I think maybe at this time they were maybe slightly more manageably sized. Right, yeah. Not like entire rooms, but... Gotcha. Cool. So, um, because the... West Area computers were kind of disbanded. Catherine worked as an aerospace technologist in the space ca- spacecraft control branch of NASA. So that's where she was for the rest of her time. Okay. And although at this point desegregated, there was still a kind of pervasive discrimination at NASA. Um, And Johnson says at this time, quote, we needed to be assertive as women in those days, assertive and aggressive. And the degree to which we had to be that way depended on where you were. I had to be. In the early days of NASA, women were not allowed to put their names on the reports. No woman in my division had had her name on a report. Wow. I was working with Ted Skopinski, and he wanted to leave and go to Houston. But Henry Pearson, our supervisor, he was not a fan of women. Kept pushing him to finish the report we were working on. Not a fan. <laughs> like, not a fan of women. Jeez. Yeah. Where does he think he came from? Sorry. <laughs> He's an alien. Show some respect. <laughs> so finally, Ted told um, him, him as in supervisor, doesn't like women. He said, quote, Catherine should finish the report. She's done most of the work anyway. So then Ted left Pearson with no choice. I finished the report and my name went on it, and that was the first time a woman in our division had her name on something. Yeah, hell yeah. Ted's an ally. We need (laughs) more Ted's. We need more Ted's and more Catherine's. (laughs) Well, you just stand up and you're like, I... She should be on the report. This is bullshit. She did the report, yeah. She did it. It should be her name. Don't don't be such a woman hater. Just... Let her put her name on it. So once she had her name on reports, this also kind of changed her status. People knew the good work she was doing, and she got more and more involved um, in very, like, high-profile space things because of this, I think. Good. So this report specifically laid out equations that would form the basis of the crewed orbital space flight piloted by John Glenn. Wow. Um, making her calculations integral for the success of this mission. So he, he went around, he orbit was the first um, man or first American to orbit space, like orbit the Earth. Right, yeah. In these, like, if you look at images of these spacecrafts, they give me claustrophobia just looking at them. <laughs> They're so tiny. <sighs> I can't imagine going into space. It would no, really freak no, me out. No, no. I have absolutely no interest in anything mm-hmm. related to space, except Katherine Johnson. <laughs> yeah. And maybe Sally Ride. And uh, yeah, Mae Jemison. J- you know, just all the people. Yeah, you know, yeah. all the people. I, I don't want to go into space. <laughs> yeah, we just have no um, interest in being in, in the space. No, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, Vera Rubin. We'll, can we, we'll yeah, stop yeah. here. Um, so although NASA had moved to using electrical computers at this time, John Glenn insisted that Katherine Johnson and only Katherine Johnson, who he called, quote, the girl, 
<laughs> just not great, but whatever. Um, John Glenn insisted that Katherine Johnson verify the computer's numbers for calculating his orbit around Earth right. before he would actually, like, take off. He knew because he knew good. that she was so accurate that, like, he trusted her to yeah. get him, like, safely home. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also her ability and reputation for this accuracy which helped establish confidence in using digital computers. So she oh. did a lot of checking and redoing the math that the computers right. were doing to verify that they were doing it right. Wow. Yeah. It's like she was better than the computer. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. that's it's interesting to me that there was a time when we trusted humans more than computers at doing complex math. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it is. It's a very it's very different than how we think of it now. Yeah, that's cool. All right. So in. In 1959, Catherine married James A. J- or James A. Johnson, a U.S. Army officer and Korean War veteran. Oh, um, I don't know how they met. Vaguely, and this could be completely wrong, but like I did watch Hidden Figures, and I do remember that like I think it was a setup with like her family or her community or something. There was some setup where they're like. Catherine's a widow and like look at this sexy man. Sexy US Army veteran. <laughs> no? I took different things away from the movie than uh-huh. maybe you did. But so I think I think it was kind of like a setup. And that's how she okay. met him. Yeah. Um, I mean that could just be your Hollywood story. <laughs> it could just but... be at Hollywood. Or maybe like I did watch it on a plane. I could have been hallucinating. Um <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So that could be our. Yeah. That's a you know potential, not historical part of the story. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. Okay. Could just be Emlyn's hallucinations. Uh, Yeah. It could just be my hallucinations. (laughs) So also, Catherine. Johnson, now Katherine Johnson, um, she calculated the trajectory for the May 5th, 1961 space flight of Alan Shepard. Wow. Um, who was the first American in space. She also determined the launch window for Shepard's Mercury mission and ensured his Mercury 7 or Freedom 7 Mercury capsule would be found quickly after landing. And she also worked on backup navigation charts in the event of any electrical failures. So she made all of these calculations of like, if this goes wrong and like the trajectory is offset, then like, how are they going to have to navigate to get them back safely? Um, Just like crazy calculations to think of. And so high stakes too. I mean, so high stakes. Yeah. I would feel so nervous. You'd have to have a lot of confidence, you know, and she should because she was that good. But um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Catherine Johnson also helped calculate the trajectory for the 1969 Apollo 11 flight to the moon. And she worked wow. on the Apollo 13 moon mission, providing backup procedures and calculations for their safe return when the mission. So, the mission had to be aborted midway. I'm not right. sure why. Like, something wasn't That's working. That's a whole other um, movie. And it just, yeah. 
and it wasn't safe. But she, like she had done so many calculations of all these backup procedures that they actually very safely could return back having not completed their mission. So like she helps do all those calculations to keep them safe. All right. So there was no Katherine Johnson character in the Apollo 13 movie from what I remember. I'm not surprised. Tom Hanks. Did you ever see that movie? No, I haven't. Okay. It was pretty big. I believe it. (laughs) I've heard of it. I'm just saying they made Tom Hanks the hero of that movie. But um, Mm -hmm. I know. I know. uh, I mean, Tom Hanks is good, but he's no Katherine Johnson. (laughs) Apollo 13 Um, is just hidden figures, too, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Gotta have a sequel. Mm-hmm. So in a 2010 interview, Katherine Johnson recalled, quote, everybody was concerned about them getting there. We were concerned about getting them back. Right. Which I just like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's great to get them to the moon, but I think it's probably more important to make sure that they like get home. <laughs> uh, smart. Uh, And so later in her career, Johnson also worked on the space shuttle program, the Earth Resources Satellite, and on plans for a mission to Mars. Whoa. She has her hands in all sorts of things. I didn't even know they were thinking about Mars at that time, you know? Well, I think, I mean, like, she died at 101. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Like, yeah, just this year or last year? Yeah. 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 Okay, sorry. We're not there yet. That's the you know, yeah. conclusion. But mm-hmm. I just um, like totally blanked on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she was. I don't know in what capacity she was working on plans yeah. for a mission to Mars. But all right. So kind of in toll and in summary of her work, Johnson co-authored twenty six scientific papers oh. during her career. She was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Barack Obama in two thousand fifteen as a pioneering example of African-American women in STEM. President Obama said at the time, quote, Catherine G. Johnson refused to be limited by society's expectations of her gender and race while expanding the boundaries of humanity's reach. Breaking all kinds of ceilings. Mm -hmm. In 2017, a new 40,000 square foot building at Langley was named the Catherine G. Johnson Computational Research Facility. And NASA Deputy Director Lewin said, quote, Millions of people around the world watched Shepard's flight, but what they didn't know at the time was that the calculations that got him into space and safely home were done by today's guest of honor, Katherine Johnson. Wow. Uh, and Katherine also received a Silver Snoopy Award, which is such a weird name. I'm sure there's <laughs> oh. a reason why it's called that. Yeah. But it's given by NASA to uh, employees who have made outstanding contributions to flight safety and mission success. Wow. It's always great. Like some of the women we talk about never received, you know, any kind of recognition during their time. So I always like to hear about those that were recognized while they were alive. It's fine when they're recognized like 30 years after their death, but it's not super great for them. No. Yeah. All right. And West Virginia State University established a STEM scholarship in her honor and erected Aww. a life-size statue of her on their campus. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. That's cool. I want to see that. And then kind of 
back to Hidden Figures, which we talked about at the beginning, which is written by Margot Lee Shetterly, is about Katherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Mary Jackson, who are all mathematicians at the NASA, mm-hmm. at NASA during the space race. Um, <clears throat> and Margaret Lee Shetterly, actually, she grew up near Langley, and her father worked at NASA, and she, like, knew, like, all of the people around her were, you know like, black women who worked at NASA, and she just thought that that was, like, the norm. And then she started learning all about, like, the women who worked at the West Area Computers Group and, like, their contributions. And, like, almost none of them besides Katherine Johnson had their names on any reports. Yeah. So then she just started digging and becoming really obsessed with figuring out, like, all the contributions of these Mm -hmm. women um, that really were hidden figures in yeah. this, like, big space race. Um, and they were doing so much of, like, the math and the nitty-gritty behind the scenes and not getting credit for it. So I just thought that was cool that she had, like, this personal um, connection, yeah. and that's why she started getting into it. And Ugh. that is the story of Katherine Johnson. Oh, such a good, positive, uplifting story. She's so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's great. And they like Lego wanted to make a Lego of her, but she like turned it down because I think Aww. she's very much doesn't want to be in the spotlight and definitely wants to like showcase yeah, other very people. Humble, modest, um, very yeah. humble. Yeah, interesting. But I would totally have a Lego of her. But I I understand that you might not want a Lego of yourself. Yeah, it could feel weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wonder. But yeah, so that's that's what I've got. Oh, I really like that. Yeah, I've been wanting to go over, talk about her for a while. Oh, uh, and then I didn't mention, um, she died in February 24th, 2020, so at the age of 101. So, like, yeah, it was pretty recent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad we could learn more about her um, at last. Yes, indeed. And I think we'll definitely have to cover Mary Jackson and... Dorothy Vaughn, but I yeah. I was thinking about doing them all together, but then it just, you know, each of them contributed so much that I think they yeah. deserve their own yeah. showcase. So sometime, sometime in the future, we'll <laughs> talk about both of those ladies, too. Yeah, for sure. All right. Should we move on? Work, 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 work. All right. So this is our Women Who Work section where we give shout outs to badass ladies making history today and um, in a continued (laughs) effort to help amplify non-white voices this week in our shout outs we wanted to highlight science and academia related podcasts hosted by black women yes and so i've chosen a few to tell everyone about that i really like Um, And I think our listeners would be interested in because they focus on science, but also include those sort of personal touches of, you know, the host's background and their and just women in science too. you know, like the stories and and history. Um, But I'm trying to put together and we'll hopefully have this out when we release the pod, a list, a longer list of just all or many science and academia podcasts hosted by black indigenous or people of color. Yeah. And so we'll 
put that in the podcast description and post it on social media. So if you want more podcast recommendations, you can definitely go look at that. And if you know of any that are missing from the list, please let us know and we'll add them. So hopefully getting that together by the time this comes out. Okay. So here are the podcasts. Tell me. Tell me everything. Okay. So the first podcast I wanted to highlight is one you told me about, Emlyn, called In Those Genes. Yeah, Which is... A podcast hosted by a human geneticist, Dr. Janina Jeff, who uses genetics to decode the lost histories and futures of African Americans. So every episode, Dr. Jeff breaks down a different aspect of human genetics, from genetic testing to genetic variation across populations and individuals. She does an awesome job of describing the intricacies and complexity of human genetics in a really fun way, while also discussing how genetic science has previously been used incorrectly to justify racism against um, black people and to justify like white supremacy, you know? Um, So I think it's a podcast that should be interesting to anyone and everyone. And, um, and yeah, she, again, just does a really great job of breaking down some really complex genetic science. Yeah. It's also, like, I, I listened to a couple episodes, and it's, like, very jam-packed with information, but also mm-hmm. very funny. Yeah. Um, it's really- and she does a really good job of making it seem just, like, easy to, in- like, absorb. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, like, very enjoyable to listen to. There's lots of, like, kind of hip-hop music clips. Um, yeah, it's great. I really yeah, I really liked what I've really listened good. to so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second podcast I want to highlight is called Black Plus in Grad School. And this is hosted by Alante Whitmore, who is currently pursuing her Ph.D. in civil engineering and engineering public policy at Carnegie Mellon. Um, let's see. And since 2017, she's been posting one episode a week about her life in her PhD program. And it kind of just feels like you're listening to someone reading their diary. It's really Uh good. Um, yeah. In some moments it's really funny and almost even like mundane in some ways. Like she's just talking Mm -hmm. about her week or her day or something that happened that was like, just interesting or funny. Um, and in other moments, it's really personal and heartfelt. Um, yeah, she talks about her day-to-day life. She interviews other Black women in academia. And she talks about resources she's using to get through every week, um, good times and bad times. So I just highly recommend it if you like podcasts with more of a personal touch to them, you yeah. know? And I love that. Yeah, it's really good. So the third podcast I want to highlight is a podcast called Dope Labs. Yes. So if you like podcasts where funny people break down complex scientific topics, then you'll really like the podcast Dope Labs, where every week best friends and scientists TT and Zakaya discuss the science um, and include you know the history, ecology, sociology, and ep economics behind trending topics like polling 
like, you know, polling people, surveys, you know, um, cookouts, coronavirus, like they talk about the science of, of just about everything relating to trending topics. So it's really funny and interesting. Um, and they do a great job also of making science interesting for people who like science and for people who don't think they like science. And it's yeah. just really funny. So I definitely recommend it if you like funny science podcasts. Yes, I do. I need yeah. more laughter in my I need more laughter in my life. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. those are the three podcasts I wanted to highlight in those genes, Black Plus in Grad School and Dope Labs. Take a listen, highly recommend, and then take a look at our list of podcasts if you want even more podcasts hosted by um BIPOC hosts. Yeah, I just I want to piggyback off um, of your podcast shout outs um, for like one more. It's not oh, it's specifically cool. a podcast episode. So, oh, cool. um, nice. The latest Ologies episode by Allie Ward. Right. Like a white yeah. Lady, but she's highlighting. Um, so there was last week this awesome initiative called Black Birders Week hosted by um, Black AF in STEM, mm-hmm. trying to promote... Uh, it was kind of in response to this thing that happened in Central Park where this white woman essentially, like, threatened this, like, yeah. black birder. Um, and, it, and it just kind of opened up this conversation about how, like, African Americans don't necessarily feel safe in a lot of, like, outdoor spaces mm-hmm. and how people have this perception that, like, black individuals don't enjoy nature or, like, don't belong right. there. And so it's just opened up this whole conversation. Um, yeah. And so she has highlighted, she's allowed a lot of the people who are part of Black Birders Week to kind of introduce themselves, talk about their research, talk about how they love birding or nature. Um, and so if you're interested in following a lot more, like, diverse scientists and nature enthusiasts like i would highly recommend checking out that episode and then following every one of them so yeah they're they post you know a lot of great they're all just interesting people who have do really interesting research they post interesting pictures and facts about animals so definitely just really fun to follow um, yep. and learn more about their lives and their research. And then finally, I know there's been like a lot, of, a lot of shout outs, but there's been a hashtag uh, on Twitter that's been like really big last week called Black in the Ivory. Um, yeah. Hashtag Black in the Ivory. And it's been this like really great resource to learn about the experiences of black sci- uh, black scholars like in the Ivory Tower at E Academia mm-hmm. um, and the struggles and like um, just experiences they're having in the field and how yeah. we can do better. So that's a great resource if you're interested, like if you're in academia and like want to know about more diverse experiences and what we need to work on. So yeah, mm-hmm. there, right. there's a bunch of things. Yeah, there's a lot. Of there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and then finally, want to of course give shout outs to. Caitlin Friesen for our awesome art and Artichoke for our theme music. Yeah. Um, and as always, if you like the podcast, please share, subscribe. And as always, 
Go <laughs> stimulate yourself. Go stimulate yourself. All right, bye. bye.